second ever episode of Talking About the Future. I'm Robert DeNuffel. Today I'm talking to Tom Lipte about Metaculus's new system for scoring forecasts. Tom is Metaculus's project director. He originally qualified as a super forecaster in the Good Judgment Forecasting Tournament. Before joining Metaculus, he also worked at Good Judgment Inc. Tom, I'm really excited to have you on the program. Thank you so much for inviting me, Robert. I love, uh, love talking about forecasting. So let's start by stepping back and looking at the big picture. What is Metaculus and what is it trying to do? Metaculus is an online platform where users can sign up for a free account. They can submit forecasts on a wide range of questions about, about the world. Typically has, has more of a science orientation about geopolitics. And the, the key thing we do is we keep score of those forecasts and ultimately give people an accuracy ranking so we can identify who the most accurate forecasters are. What's the point of doing that? Are you trying to produce useful forecasts? Are you trying to identify good forecasters? Are you trying to teach people forecasting skill? Is it just fun? All of the above, but some are more important than others. Ultimately, we, we aspire to improve decision-making at um, on the most consequential, complex topics facing people. So our, our ideal target audience would be uh, policymakers who are making real decisions that affect the world, and we're trying to help inform them. But we also, in order to get to that place, you, you want to do a bunch of other things, including identifying the, the best forecasters so that you can provide them with the, the best, most accurate forecasts and the best commentary. So ultimately, one of the, maybe the primary goal of Metaculus is to produce some output which is useful to people who are making real world decisions about, say, politics. Yeah, or, or make, real, make real world policy, policy decisions. So, you know, in, in our ideal world, we would be red at the White House. Ultimately, Metaculus has some kind of an algorithm which produces a Metaculus prediction from the forecasting input. Do you wait? forecasters with better track records more highly in this algorithm? That is exactly what the Metaculus prediction does. Um, when you go to our site, you, you don't typically see that. You see something called the community prediction, which actually does not take reputation into account. But we provide the Metaculus prediction to our partners on the back end. So they have access to that when they're running a program with us, the most accurate possible estimate that we can come up with. And just, just as a point of reference, the Metaculus prediction is generally a few percentage points better than the community prediction. How much more heavily weighted, say, very top, top forecaster in Metaculus, how much heavier a weight will they get than someone who just logged on and never has no track record? If you just logged on, you have, actually I should rewind, there's a, um, there's a machine learning algorithm that it's built on. So it's a little complex ever explaining what, you know, how a machine learning algorithm is weighting things. Uh, but typically, someone who just made an account today will have no impact. None. Yeah, because we, we will start them with a poor prior. We'll, we'll like say, hey, you're starting today. We're going to pretend that you have answered 20 questions really poorly to start off. And as you answer more questions, you're, um, you can overcome that initial drag and your opinion will start to matter. So not just a random prior, not just like assuming they're a coin flip, but assuming they're actually bad. That's the prior? Yes. For the Metaculus prediction. Then for the community prediction, we, we, don't, we don't have a reputation waiting. So how is what Metaculus does 
different from a prediction market? Yeah, we're, we're different in a few ways. So um, first of all, you can go on to Metaculus. You can submit a forecast on any question you want. And you don't need a buyer or seller to take the other side of that bet on Metaculus. You're just submitting a forecast. You're going to be scored based on the accuracy of your forecast. It doesn't depend on any other people or market maker. And maybe some of the maybe what you're getting at is some of the consequences of this. On a prediction market, you can make money by anticipating the behavior of other buyers or sellers. Maybe you think there's momentum and you can make money that way. On Metaculus, that really isn't true. You want to make your forecast based purely on what you think the outcome will be. So even if you think other people are making a mistake, you should always be submitting your true your true forecast. Even if you thought that they were gonna the crowd was going to rise. That shouldn't impact your forecast. You should always just submit your most accurate forecast. So that's a pretty different behavior from a prediction market. Um, another way it manifest, the difference manifests itself is for tail events. If you thought the market was saying 95% and you were pretty sure it was 99%, but it was going to take a year before it resolved and you got paid out, in a prediction market, you might not want to lock up your money for that long and wait for the 5% payout when you could just earn 5% in the bank. On Metaculus, you could just say 99% today and you can get credit for that. So I think we, we have an advantage of having more accurate forecasts for the tail events. So for certain forecasts, the return on investment on prediction market would be so low that you'd be better off just putting your money in a CD or whatever, whatever the alternative would be. Yeah, that's right. Another difference is that when I'm on a prediction market, right, I'm staking something. It's a financial bet that I'm making. Are there disadvantages to doing a system where people don't have any skin in the game besides reputation, besides a score at the end? So, yeah, one, one consequence is you, if you're really, really sure that the crowd is wrong on one particular question, in a market, you can just go all in with all of your money. Right. So it weights your, your answer more heavily, effectively. Yes. And on Metaculus, you can't do that. I don't know. It can be an advantage or disadvantage. Depends on how you look at it. It's a difference. But I I would say you do, you know, on Metaculus, you do have skin in the game if you care about your reputation. If you're you're concerned about your long-term reputation over many questions, then your incentive is to submit your true probability. So that actually brings me, it's a great segue, Tom. Thank you. The question is, why does Metaculus even need a scoring system? What's a function of a scoring system for a platform like Metaculus? Maybe I just zoom out and ask even the, the very broader topic. Why keep score at all? My, my short answer would be it provides feedback so that you can answer certain questions. So when I look in the mirror, I say, am I overconfident? I'm like, no, of course, I'm perfectly confident. But how do I know? If I'm really overconfident or not, my answer is you need to keep score of yourself. So even just to know yourself, you would want to try to answer questions and then get the feedback and find out whether your calibration curve says you're overconfident or underconfident. So just to make it personal, I've been doing this for about 10 years now. My calibration curves tend to show that I'm underconfident. And there is no way that I would know that without keeping score. And actually, maybe the, the funny thing is I know that I'm underconfident and I try to adjust my behavior to correct for that. And I find it extremely difficult to do it. Um, so it's, it's very consistent over the years. I'm always a little bit underconfident and I can't, I can't break the cycle. 
So when you say underconfident, you're saying something like, when you say there's a 90% chance of something happening, maybe it actually happens 95% of the time. Yeah, probably 93%. Other reasons to keep score. One, you can identify who the most accurate forecaster is, so I know who to listen to, or I know who I can learn from. Wow, wouldn't it be interesting to say, like, these are the top five most accurate people. Like, I want to see what they're doing, understand how they're doing it. Or maybe I just want to maybe I just want to listen to their opinion on how the world works. It's very useful to know that they have that that track record. And just yet another reason from the Good Judgment Project, it allows you to figure out whether making forecasts in a group is better than aggregating a bunch of individuals. Before the Good Judgment Project happened, I would have said I was pretty sure that you would get the most accurate forecast if you had 10 people they all forecast totally independently, and then I aggregated their uh, forecasts. And the good because we kept score, and Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers did a great job of uh, running a controlled experiment, we know that that's actually not correct. You get a more accurate forecast, at least if you put people in the right situation when they work together as a team. So in some way, an analogy to not keeping score would be like, say you want to practice your free throws, and you turn the lights off in the gym and you're just sitting there, you're shooting it, you don't actually know necessarily whether the ball has gone in the basket. So are you doing a good job practicing? That's a perfect analogy. And then yet yet another, another reason to keep score, sometimes it can help reduce miscommunication. So, you know, Phil Tetlock has this great line. They ask, will event X happen? And it's, it's a definite possibility. And some people might interpret that as 20%. And another person might interpret that as meaning 80%. So by assigning precise probabilities, you can reduce that source of miscommunication. Yeah. So you're actually, you're kind of referring to like, there was originally, there was a paper by a CIA analyst named Sherman Kent, I think called words of estimate of probability or something. And he basically pointed out that analysts were using tons of different phrases, probabilistic phrases, like definitely, mostly like, I don't know what all they were. And they just didn't agree on what they meant at all. So you can put a number on it, and everyone sort of agrees as a mathematical meaning to the number. That's right. One of the things, and this is a point that uh, Michael Story made in my interview with him, my previous podcast, one criticism you could make of the Good Judgment Project was it was a fantastic research project for identifying good forecasters, for figuring out what produced good forecasts, but wasn't necessarily optimized for actually making decision-relevant forecasts. How does Metaculus maybe try to, to turn this scoring into forecasts that are useful? Yeah, well, maybe I just zoom out and say, like, what is our, our ultimate goal? Our ultimate goal would be to be able to go to a policymaker and say, hey, you're considering policies A, B, and C, and you're trying to impact this outcome. And in an ideal world, we would be able to tell them, here's what we think the um, effect of policy A will be, again, probabilistically, versus probability B versus probability C. And that if you had that information and you were a policymaker, it would be very useful in informing how you, which, which policy to um, try to enact. Now, there, there's a bunch of challenges with that. One of them is you need to know what are the reasonable policies that you could even consider. You need to know what are the um, outcomes that are you're, you're trying to effect. 
there are questions around um, causality and, and how things are interconnected in the real world. So what we have spent a lot of time to do, not, not as much on the product side of the house, um, but you try to, I think you need to have a dialogue with the policymakers, understand what is realistic? What are the policy options that are even on the table? That's hard to know from the outside. You need those relationships. And we've spent a lot of time at Metaculus trying to um, foster those relationships, understanding what the, you know, the key outcomes are, trying to understand the causality as best you can, and then trying to ask the, uh, use those to ask conditional forecast questions to, to our top forecasters and, and see what they have to say. So one interesting thing is that it's not clear that for questions which are easy to forecast and score, things that make nice, neat questions are necessarily relevant to policymakers. They may be interested in knowing something that is hard to, to put a neat, quantify in some neat way. And then also you mentioned conditional forecasts. Conditional forecasts, that's sort of like saying, if we do policy X, then what will be the outcome? If we don't do policy X, what will be the outcome, right? You mentioned causality. Um, there's a causal, potentially a causal issue with doing conditional forecasts like that. Could you explain what that is? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of, this is one of the challenges um, that I, I don't think has, has a, a perfect solution, but I think you can try to, if you're aware of it, you can try to get around it. If I were to ask you, if we were imagining we were back in COVID days and I asked, there's a lot of talk about mask mandates. Let's, let's imagine someone thought masks were very, uh, very effective causally. But if you asked them, asked a very smart, clever forecaster, if there's a mask mandate imposed in a month, how many COVID cases do you think there will be versus if you don't think there's a, if there is, if there is no mask mandate in a month, how many COVID cases do you think there will be? They might reason that, well, the only reason there's going to be a mask mandate is if there's lots of cases, a world where there's lots of cases. So I'm going to say there's a high number of cases if there's a mask mandate and a low number otherwise, which is the exact opposite of what they think the causal effect is. So it's it's just a it's a simple example that highlights how tricky it is to to get to get around this causality issue. So in that case, the idea is the forecaster thinks, sure, all else being equal, if people wear masks, that'll reduce the number of cases. But we're not going to get that policy unless it's so bad it's higher. And you'd like to be able to ask the all else being equal question. Like, let's say today we introduce a mask mandate. How will that be different than if today we don't, given the number of cases there are today? But can you operationalize that question? I think, you know, as you just phrased it, the all else being equal, um, that makes it hard to score. That doesn't seem resolvable to me. So you, you could just ask people just a casual question, just listen to what they have to say. But there's no all else being equal in real life. The interesting thing is I think there are situations where you can get at at causality, where, where it works if you are careful. Um, if you thought you were the only funding source for a, for a particular company, you might be able to get some causal, a causal output by asking, if I fund that, comp- that startup, what will happen in the world versus if I don't fund that startup? what will happen in the world. In that case, if that's, the, if that's the only company that can really have an impact on the outcome you care about, and you are the only potential funder, then I think you 
have controlled for most of the confounding issues and you really have gotten at a the causal outcome that you like. So again, that's, that's a simple example. Um, I think that there are, it's, it's a gradient. And if you're careful and you think hard about it, there are ways to get causally useful information out. But I think that this is very much at the forefront of, uh, what pe- of where forecasting is at and trying to figure out how to do that most effectively and efficiently. Right. So in that case, you could get output for one half of the conditional, whichever policy you went with, you'd see how that turned out. But it's a little bit like you actually have to do randomized control trials in the real world in order to get this data. But 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 let's let's say let's say we were funding 100 potential startups, and let's say there were 100 potential startups in our in our universe. We're going to fund 50 of them, and I ask these conditional pairs for all 100. 50 of them are going to get funded, and 50 of those questions are going to resolve on the branch that yes, we funded them. What will happen in the world? And 50 of them, we will score the other branch, the 50 that didn't get funded. And I think that that's entirely proper. I think that you can score it just like any other, any normal forecasting question. I mean, there could be interaction effects between these 50, especially if they're all in the same industry. So it's complicated, right? Oh, it, yeah, it's, it's always complicated by correlations. Uh, oh, the, the standard is to always, you know, assume independence, but actually maybe that's something we'll talk about later. In many times, that is not a good assumption. And that, that, that adds a whole other complexity to it. How do you evaluate forecasting track records? Why did Metakis decide to redo the scoring system now? Like what, what are you trying to improve about the old scoring system? Were there problems with it? We were trying to make it simpler and more understandable. We were trying to make it more motivating for forecasters. We were trying to make it more consistent, more coherent, and and provide more information on who is more accurate. So the old metaculous points, they were great. It was it, It's a proper scoring system. So you're incentivized to always submit your true probability. And there's no, there's no way to game it if you're answering many questions in order to get them best possible score you submit your true probability but it was it was a cumulative score so we added your metaculous points on all questions so the only way to get to the very top of the leaderboard was to answer a lot of questions of course it it helped to answer those accurately but you still needed to answer quite a few our new scoring system we have we have two scores a baseline score which compares you to chance and where we still do the summing so you want, to, you want to be accurate, but you also want to forecast a large volume. We've introduced a new metric, which we call the peer score, which compares you to every other forecaster and takes your average. So by doing that, a more time-constrained forecaster, perhaps like you or I, can answer 40 questions in a year and is not at a disadvantage. That's a little bit like... Um... In basketball analytics, like the valuable over replacement player or warp the wins over replacement player that you might get in baseball too. That's right. But there was some controversy, right? There was some concern that with the old scoring system, somebody could just spam a lot of forecasts, maybe just put in, you know, look at the community average or median or whatever, put that forecast in, get points for doing that and rise up the leaderboard without actually providing any actual useful forecasting information. Yeah, the the metaculous points it was a uh, it was proper. It was also positive sum. 
So if you added up the points for all forecasters on a question, it, it's a positive number. So I could do, there was a certain incentive to just do a lot of participation. So you got some points just for participating, essentially. And that's not like a prediction market. In a prediction market, there's a winner on one side and a loser on the other side of the bet. That's right. Our new peer score, it compares you to every other forecaster. So by definition, the average is zero. So it corrects for that a bit. Were there people that were at the top of the leaderboard that were just answering a lot of questions and then not actually providing much useful forecasting information? Yeah. I I love this question because when I joined Metaculus, I, I would see our top forecaster. I don't want to embarrass him on this interview, but he, he was crushing it. He was at the top of the leaderboard consistently beating everyone. And it was a question in my mind, is this, is this guy really an amazing forecaster or is it just because he's answering lots of questions? And I didn't know the answer to that. I did, really didn't even know the answer to that until we fully put together our new system. And then you can go back and look historically and you can see that there were years where he was the number one, had the number one score in baseline, which was the sum of scores, which means he was answering a lot of questions, probably all of them. And at the same time, he was number one on the peer score, which means he was beating everyone by the biggest margin of any other forecaster. So in general, you'd expect those, uh, someone who was optimizing for one of those strategies to, to have different behavior. So the fact that he was able to do both simultaneously is incredibly impressive. And there was no way to see that with Metaculous Points. And you can see that very clearly with our new system. I will say just as as my own personal experience, that really is impressive, right? Like I'm pretty accurate, but I'm accurate at the cost of spending a fair amount of time thinking about each question. Yeah. You know, even just doing 40 questions in a period of time is a lot for me. But were there people who were on the leaderboard who weren't like that, who maybe just got there by spamming a lot of questions? Of course, you see people who fall into that category a bit. Most of, most of the time, the people who are most engaged in answering the most questions care a lot about it, and they, they do have pretty good accuracy scores. But it does help you differentiate who is who is who. Why did you decide initially to make forecast positive sum? What's the the rationale behind that? So it was positive sum when I arrived at Metaculum. Right. It's not now, right? That's not how it works now? That's not how it works now. It it was originally positive sum because when most people play video games, it's fun to see your score ever increasing. And some of our users still might prefer this, that you can just see your number going up day after day. And it's a little bit of an extra nudge knowing that it's positive sum. It makes forecasting a little less scary. I don't know if that sounds to listeners like a a trivial consideration, but it's actually a, certainly with prediction markets, a major problem, right? If you have a prediction market that's not positive sum, that means you have something like an equal number of winners and losers, and the losers don't have much incentive to participate. So then you get not very many people on the market. So it's Immetaculous's interest to try to attract forecasters because otherwise you're not going to get good forecasts. And you attract them to some sense by making a reward just for participating. Yeah. I should say our peer score is is not positive sum. The average is zero by definition. The baseline score compares how you did to chance. So as long as you believe you can beat chance, which hopefully you always think you can do, 
then it is positive sum because everyone can everyone can earn points on the same question. It's just a question of how much how much you beat chance by. So th- I'm a little fascinated by this because I actually think beating chance should be pretty easy. There are certainly a lot of questions where a coin flip is going to be obviously not a very good forecast. If you ask, is the sun going to come up tomorrow? It's not hard to beat chance on that because it's not 50-50 and it's obviously not 50-50. But I do sometimes wonder if there are some people who are actually worse than chance, whose instincts are exactly the opposite and actually provide good forecasting signal through how wrong they are. Like if you just said it was the opposite of what someone was saying, uh, if that was a forecasting signal. Do you, do you have an opinion on whether or not such people exist? I have not looked into that. It, it is a fascinating question because in theory, we could go through our baseline. You could. And I hope you're going to now that I've asked this question. I, I, I think we will. I, I will highlight one, one thing we do is we show anyone who's on the, who earns a medal, which generally means you're in the top 5%, we show how you earn that medal. So you can go in and you can look to see, how did Tom get a silver medal? Okay, here's all the questions he answered. Here's his score. You can't see my forecast, but you can see my score. But what we do to try to make forecasting less scary and less risk of embarrassment is we don't show how people got their scores if they didn't win a medal. So there's no way that you can find out. If someone did have a negative baseline score, you can't see that. And you don't, you don't have to worry about being embarrassed if you worry that that might happen to you. You can join Metaculus and that's going to be hidden. You're, you're only, we're only trying to show the good news and, and give people transparency as to like, how did this guy beat me? Well, you can go and you can look and you can see how, how he did it. But you, Tom, could do an anonymized study looking at the people who got bad scores. That, that's right. We could, we could go. I mean, surely there are some people who only answered a few questions and just got bad scores by luck. But the question is, what if someone answered 100 questions and had a negative baseline score? They're just always wrong. My, my hunch is that the answer is there is no one who, who has done that. But, uh, but I don't know. Maybe there is someone. I don't know. In general, how do you measure forecasting ability or forecasting performance? Is there a single metric that can capture it? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. What we do is we use a proper scoring method, which means that your incentive, if you're trying to get the, the best score in expectation over many questions, is you should submit your true probability. And we view that as an essential principle um, for metaculous scoring. But there are many ways to do proper scoring. And depending on your choice of scoring method, you will get a different ordering of who is most accurate. So perhaps the two most common scoring metrics are the Breyer score, which is your squared difference, your squared error. And that's like what um, Good Judgment Open would use or what Good Judgment Project used. And Metaculus uses a log score, which is also proper. I don't think you can objectively say one is better than the other. It, It really comes down to one of those systems punishes a certain type of error more than the other. So the log score is very sensitive near the tails. The example that I like to give is if you say 0% chance of something happening, and then it actually happens, with Breyer scoring, you get the worst possible score, but it's actually not that much worse than someone who said a 10% chance that it happened. With log scoring, the story is completely different. If you say 0% and it happened, you get negative infinity. 
and you can never, ever catch up. To, to make sure that that never happens, on Metaculous, we make sure that you can never forecast 0% or 100%. You can get down to 0.1%, or you can forecast 99.9%, but you cannot go all the way to the extremes, because then you're wiped out forever. So that's different from, from Good Judgment Open, where you can forecast 0%, and you can be wrong, and you can come back from that. I'm inclined to say that makes sense to me epistemologically. Just in the sense that, like, I don't think it's ever right to say there's a zero or a hundred percent chance of something happening. Yeah. You could tell me something that's just totally absurd, and I'm going to say it's basically zero. But there's always a chance because we're talking about not like sort of some kind of necessarily true probability about the world. But in terms of what we can know, I could always just be completely deluded. I could be a brain in a vat. I could just be totally confused. There is some chance of that. I like to think it's small, but it's non-zero. So if I actually were to say zero, not rounding, I mean, most of the time I round, right? But if I say zero, not rounding, I'm probably wrong in terms of what it's possible for me to know. Yep. Yep. No, I, I agree hundred percent. Robert Rubin wrote a great book where he talks about like exactly this, but yeah, I, I, I have the same mentality. I'm never willing to actually say zero percent. I'll say like, you know, one chance in a billion, but not zero. And just to, just to highlight, like for Metaculus, the founders are physicists. They were concerned about the really big questions about humanity's existence. They care a lot about tail risks, extinction events. Things with very low probabilities, we think. Hopefully very low probabilities. So, so in that context, I think the log score does make more sense because they, they care about the tail events and the log score is, is more sensitive to the tail events. If you're talking about elections where it's more 50-50 and you wanted to differentiate forecasting skill, you'd probably want to choose a Breyer score. Um, I think that's more sensitive. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer here. I think one thing that you find when you're forecasting is it's easier to tell the difference between 0.1% and 0.2% than 50.1% and 50.2% in a lot of cases. Yeah. Just to say another way, the difference between 0.1% and 0.2% is a factor of two. Right, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. Some, some of our forecasters like to think in terms of odds. I, d- I don't personally, but, but there, in, if you think about in odds, then it's a, yeah, it's a factor of two. Right. It's one in 500 versus one in a thousand. Right. I often do that because I just find it easier to think, yeah, I find it easier to think one in seven, one in six than, you know, 14% and 16% or whatever you would round it to. Yeah. So I, I think that that probably does make sense. But what you're saying essentially is in the middle of the probability distribution, log scores are not going to be very sensitive to whether or not you're exactly right about 50 or 51%. Well, I wouldn't say not, but but less sensitive. Less sensitive. They, they punish that error less than they punish a similar error in absolute terms. Exactly. So Metaculus has a system of, uh, what do you call it, continuous scoring, where you actually can give a probability distribution for at least some questions as opposed to just a point probability. Like instead of saying, well, maybe I should have you explain. You probably have a better way of explaining it than I was about to fumble to do. Uh, can you explain, first of all, what that what it means to do a continuous probability estimate? Yeah, sure. So if you were to ask me the, what do I think the number of COVID cases will be in one month, I would generally give you a, what we call a probability distribution function where my 50th percentile, I think there's a uh, 50% of the time it'll be below below that, and 50% of the time I think it will be above that. And then you can um, you can think of it as as giving confidence intervals around that 
that central forecast. So I could give you my 90-10 confidence interval. That would say, I think 90% of the time it's going to fall in you know, the range I provide. If I gave you all of those intervals, you could you could draw a distribution for what you think what I think is most likely, and then you can score that distribution just like you score a normal binary forecast. Again, this is one of these things we thought a lot about when we were revamping the scoring. The, the way Metaculus has historically worked, and we decided to to uh, make work going forward, is you only look at the distribution at the resolution outcome when it comes to scoring. But that's not the only that's not the only way to do it. And very reasonable people can argue that you should do it a different way. You should take the entire distribution into account when scoring. And again, there's there are these really there there are pluses and minuses and there's no right answer. It's just I think to a certain extent what you subjectively prefer and what kind of errors you want to punish the most. Let's say I say there's a certain number of COVID cases. And where before that happened, I said there was a 70% chance that it would be that, at least that many and a 30% chance it would be above that. And you're scoring just that number and not looking at the, the shape of the rest of my probability curve. Actually, it's, it, it's even more... Uh, <laughs> it, gets, it gets very confusing. So that, that would be looking at it in the cumulative distribution function space. Are you looking at the height of the of the curve at that point? The the percentage that I said that exact thing was going to happen. The height of the PDF, yeah. So yeah, we we take your probability distribution function and then we just whatever if there's a million cases, we say what was Robert's what was the height of his probability distribution function at a million cases. So let's say that the height of the 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 distance that at that height was 2% at that point. And maybe I said there was a 90% chance of, uh, you know, 999,000 uh, cases. But you're not, that, that doesn't matter that I had a very high distribution close to that point in your scoring system. That's right. So, so th- this, was, this was a big debate internally. And we, there's a lot of people who feel really strongly that the only thing that matters is the height of your, your distribution at the resolution value. And it doesn't matter if you had a lot of probability mass really close to it or really far away, doesn't make any difference. It only matters what you said on the exact outcome. And there's a certain set of people who feel really strongly that that's the only thing that matters. And it, it was fascinating. We did a lot of user interviews. You find a lot of other people who would, who would say, well, the person who had more mass closer to the outcome deserves a better score. And the interesting thing, again, is there's no right answer. They are both proper systems. And in the long run, you should submit your the most accurate forecast that you can. And the key difference is they, they, would, they would reward or punish different kinds of errors. But who's to say what, what error is, is right well, or wrong? That's my question, actually. You say there's no right answer. But are there different facts about the world that would make one, one system more accurate than another? Do they represent different, is it just a, a different interpretation of what probability means? Or, you know, are there, are there things that could be the case that would determine one, make one system more accurate? But again, I, I think it gets back to what do you mean by most accurate? Because one, one system would say one thing is more accurate and another system would say another thing is more accurate. So it's just, it's just what kinds of errors do you think matter? I guess what I'm asking is, 
Is there an answer to what kinds of errors are more important that is just that is different from just our preference, our subjective preference as people who are choosing to, to score forecasts? Yeah, I personally, I don't think so. It, it, getting back to the log versus Breyer score, it's like, do you care about the zero to 1% error or the 50 to 51% error? Like you, you have to tell me which of those you prefer. And there's no, I don't see any objective way to say whose opinion is right. How accurate ultimately is Metaculus? If you look at Metaculus's prediction that you give to your partners, uh, how good is that, do you think? Yeah, so th- th- this opens up a, a really fascinating question. Basically, any, any forecasting question, you could, you could tell me the, the score of a certain platform or a forecaster, over a thousand questions. You could tell me, Tom, here's their log score. Here's their Briar score. Do you think that they're a good forecaster or not? And my answer is, I don't think I can tell you much at all because they might have a really great score if all the questions were really, really easy. Like, will the sun rise tomorrow? Or they might have a really terrible score and be a great forecaster. Because if, if I'm asking them I'm gonna, about a coin flip, the best they can do is to say 50-50, their score is going to be bad. But that doesn't mean they're a bad, bad forecaster. So in order to get around that, you really do need to compare to some kind of benchmark. On a platform like Metaculus, you can compare forecasters to each other or to the community aggregate, and that provides a kind of benchmark. If you ask how does Metaculus compare to other platforms, again, you run into this same question. What you, what you would really need is a controlled study where both platforms were answering the same questions under the same conditions, and then compare over the long term how, how well they did. I don't think we have any definitive answer. I can say that we have, uh, we probably have four or five studies where we do have very similar, if not exactly the same questions on, on different platforms. I don't want to say who or exactly what, but most of them, the statistical significance um, for any one of those studies is not particularly strong. So we have, we have one example where you have 25 questions and it's just not statistically significant. What I would say, and again, maybe I'm maybe I'm biased, or maybe I'm deluding myself. The analysis that we that that I'm aware of is that like, what we have four or five of those where Metaculus did do marginally better than other comparable platforms or experts. So once you have like five of those, where you're like, huh, you know, you won every one of those, even though each one was statistically not significant, you do start to feel like maybe you can assign some significance. And actually, that's a project that I'm kind of pretty passionate about because I, I worry that I'm, I'm motivated by and cherry-picking things and I'm forgetting the times when Metaculus lost. So in my ideal world, you would commit to scoring using a certain methodology. Say you need this much of an advantage in your score to claim st- statistical significance and commit to that. Before you collect any forecasts, re-register your your hypotheses. Re-register it, and then go go forth. Do your comparisons against other platforms, and put the questions on Metaculus, saying like, "We're going to score this question against this person when it resolves. We don't know what the answer is, and we're going to commit to doing this. And there's a chance that we're going to lose, and that's going to be pretty embarrassing. Which is why I have not seen." Anyone do this? I would. I would. I have not seen any platform do this. But this, 
this would be, I guess I'm speaking for myself now. This is, this is one of those things that I would find very inspiring. And I, I hope, I hope we're able to do, I think, I think we're moving in that direction. The initial good judgment project basically did something like this. It put a bunch of different people trying to produce the best forecasts up and good judgment won that. And then it became the good judgment project because it was named after they essentially just turned it over to good judgment. You could, this hasn't been tried for a while, but you could do something like a world series or a Super Bowl of, you know, have direct head to head friendly competitions to improve different platforms, but have direct head to head questions versus uh, the various different things like good judgment or uh, prediction markets like manifold. Do you think that's a thing that could ever happen? Just, you know, an annual best of be like an esport. Yeah. I mean, you, you do it be, between individual forecasters. I, I think you could do it between platforms. It, maybe a more realistic place where you might see this first is we have some college initiatives going right now. We have different different colleges. They have students within each college forecasting on the same questions, and they can compete against each other to see which college is more accurate. So, so there have already been some pilots done that we've uh, we've partnered with Optic, and we hope to do more of that in the future. I think you could do it in high. You could have high school leagues. Like I think it'd be really fun to teach forecasting to high schoolers because they're totally capable of doing it, and uh, have them compete against one another in the equivalent of like a debate cod league or something. I absolutely love that. I would I would have loved to have learned my uh, like my history or current events by like, hey, make a forecast on this question. Have all your students make the forecast, write their rationale. A month later, you find out the answer. That's a great way to, at least for me, to like stay engaged with the the real world. Because it's meaningful. It's not just a li- memorizing a system a system of uh, a list of facts or something. I'm actually trying to understand things functionally in a way. And then you feel like if you produced accurate forecasts time and time again, maybe you do understand something. Underneath that, you must be getting some structure in a way that matters. Absolutely. Is Metaculous' ultimate mission to help people think about the future and probabilities more accurately, to think about things more clearly by developing this method? That is part of our, um, part of our mission, something that I'm, I'm pretty inspired by. Uh, I, I like to think that... W- while it would be terrific and while I, I absolutely want to help policymakers make better decisions, I think another another path to having a positive impact would be if you could instill this, this uh, humility that comes with forecasting and this quantitative thinking and this rigorous way of thinking, let that seep into the broader population a little bit. I think that that could reduce some of the partisanship you see now and some of these, uh, you know, very right-wing or, or left-wing uh, news outlets that cater to what people want to hear rather than what is actually uh, the truth. It's interesting you talk about humility because one of the traits, I think, of a good forecaster is recognizing that you might be wrong. And you want to be accurately figure out how likely you are to be wrong. But usually you need more humility than most people have. You need to recognize that your initial intuition about how things are is maybe more likely to be wrong than you would expect. And that's something that forecasting teaches you. That's right. And, and I mean, that's an advantage of keeping score. It's easy to say like, oh, this is so stupid. This is never going to happen. And then as soon as you like are keeping score, and I know that I'm going to be embarrassed if it does happen, then it's like, wow, maybe I should be listening to what the other side has to say. Maybe the other side has at least a little point, And maybe I should adjust my, 
my forecast to make it a little bit more humble. Right. And this is a problem with pundits often. Like I just saw the economist Larry Summers basically say it was obvious that inflation was going to come down uh, the way it did because it was transitory. And you can go back like just a year ago where he said, that's definitely not happening. And I'm not even sure Larry Summers knows that that's what he said. Like, I don't think he's necessarily even being dishonest. People tend to remember they were more right than they were. 100%. I think, I think that's a huge part of why I even got interested in forecasting in the first place is because I just wanted that personal feedback. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't deluding myself by forgetting my failures. Forecasting makes you, uh, make, makes you face your full, your full uh, gamut from your successes to your failures. This is great. I really appreciated this discussion. This was super fun. Thank you so much for coming on, Tom. Thank you so much, Robert. I enjoyed this.